0: Have you heard the best way to invest is to buy low and sell high? What does that even mean? And is it even possible? We're going to talk about investing today and the way you can really build wealth as an investor.
1: Welcome to Adulting, a podcast where we want to adult every day. Download episodes at adulting.tv Welcome to Adulting. I'm Harlan and I'm here with Miranda and today we're talking investing, buying low and selling high and is that even a thing that people can do? How are you doing, Miranda?
0: I'm doing pretty well. How are you?
1: I am also doing well.
0: This is a subject of particular passion for me. I love talking about investing. I love talking about beginning investing. And I love talking about how, you know, regular folks can get started without having to invest a lot of money or have to know a lot about the market.
1: Right. And there's certainly you don't need to know a lot to get started. But one of the things that's driven into people's head is this idea. That in order to succeed in investing, which means growing your money over a long period of time, which is the whole point, that's what we want to do, the way to do that is to buy low and sell high. And we hear this repeated so often. The first question is, what does that mean? And then the next question is, is it something that we can even do as human beings? So, (laughs) Miranda, how can you explain buying low and selling high? What's low? What's high? What's high?
0: And that's the funny thing, right? We're talking recently the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which we like to consider the stock market, even though there are thousands of publicly traded companies that make up the stock market. Uh, A lot of us, when we think about it, we focus on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and it recently closed above 20,000 points. And so, you know, everybody looks at that. What does that even
1: mean? So, What does that even mean? (laughs) What is a point? And why are there 20,000 of them? And what is it?
0: Yeah, the basic level, it's like saying a dollar, right? So it takes 30 of the top companies and puts it on this Dow Jones industrial average. And then what these stocks are trading at together is basically, you know, what their points are. So basically, together, they're all worth more than, you know, each stock is worth 20,000 or whatever. And so, (laughs) so it's really hard to kind of parse that down and, and find like true value. What is worth? What is value? That's a question that you always have to be asking yourself when you're investing. And, uh, for just about everything, and this includes gold, by the way, just about everything, the value comes from what we give it and what we humans kind of imbue it with. So when we're looking at Dow closed above 20,000, we feel like we're seeing this bull run. We feel like things are really high, which means if you're going to try and buy low and sell high, this seems like a pretty crappy time to do it, right? (laughs) Because you know, the the good time to buy low and sell high would have been to buy eight years ago during 2009 when the Dow was low, below 7,000, and you buy a stock then and then wait for it to then you can sell it when it gets high. But the problem you have with that is what happens in terms of market timing and what if you can't get in then, right? What if you weren't born in 2009? Or what if you were just a 10-year-old in 2009? Or what if you had no money in 2009? How do you get in at that point? And so the idea of buying low and selling high is trying to find a stock that's you know, it's got a low price right now, and then you hope it'll grow in the future. But you never know if that's going to happen. You know, and as far as the the market as a whole is concerned, that's really hard because you have to be able to get in when it's low.
1: And the problem is that when it is low, people are not prepared to get in. And the reasons that there is this idea that the stock market is low or relatively low compared to surrounding times or when it's comparatively high compared to surrounding times that goes against our own drives for using money and just to kind of explain this we we say that when 20,000 could be any number i mean who cares what the number is what you want to look is you want to look at is how It increases over time, or if we're in a bad economic situation, then we're going to see it fall for a long time. And we all like to think, all right, it's falling, it's falling. We see this crash, and we're in this middle. We're in the middle of this crash, so let's invest now for the future, right? For that time when it's going to inevitably come back up. But when you have that crash, when the stock market is low, that affects. Your situation. First of all, people feel really bad. So even if they have money sitting around ready to invest, they're going to say, well, it's just going to go lower. It's just going to go lower. Wait, wait, wait until the actual bottom. And no one really knows when the actual bottom is. But the reality is that the economy reflected through stock prices and such is not this thing that exists somewhere else. We're a part of it. And when the economy is low that's when we're dealing with things like losing our jobs or the we feel that the value of our house has gone down so low and we can't get out of it because now we owe more money than it's worth. And so we have these pressures that prevent us from having cash available to actually invest when the stock market is low. So that, in addition to just these psychological forces that keep us from investing in times of financial turmoil, it makes it impossible to do this thing that everybody says is the absolute key to building wealth. We, we have to figure out a way to come up with a plan that is more than just buying low and selling high because we're prevented from doing that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think you kind of touched on it, the, the psychology of it, right? Our, our lizard brains <laughs> um, freak out and, we think, oh my gosh, everything's crashing. We have to sell these stocks, which are have proven that they're unstable and unsafe. We have to sell them and move into something safe like bonds. And the problem you run into is when you sell something during a market dip, you are locking in your losses, right? It's all on paper until you actually sell.
1: Yeah, but but people aren't selling because they, they see that they're selling because that's when they need the money. When the economy tanks, it's like, oh, no, you don't want to sell now. You don't want to sell your investments or get rid of your investments now and turn them into cash because it's going to get better down the road. But when the economy bottoms out like that and the stock market crashes and uh, it's the time not to sell, that's when you, that's when your income is gone. You know, you lost a job, for example, or you don't have the cash in your house because that the housing market crashed whatever it is you know that it's not right to sell now when everything is low and you're going to lock in those you know lock in those losses but you have to because you need the cash to continue buying food for your family and to continue paying your rent or your mortgage when you need the money is when you sell. You you don't sell when it's high because there's always the idea that it's just going to go higher, right? Because the stock market over the long term goes up. So this high doesn't exist. You sell when you need to sell because you need the money. Otherwise, nobody's ever going to sell.
0: I think there are a couple different things happening. Like you said, uh, people do sell when they need the money when the economy goes bad, and they definitely need to do that. But part of the other problem is a lot of people choose the market event to rebalance their portfolios, right? And say, all right, well, this has proven unsafe. So now I'm going to move the bulk of my 401k assets into bonds so that I don't have this loss again. But So I think there are a couple of things happening here, but both of them are reasons that we have a very hard time as humans sticking to the buy low, sell high narrative.
1: Yeah, so that's why I think we should just get rid of that and say, buy as soon as possible and sell. <laughs> Never? <laughs> sell, sell, sell when we got to sell at some
0: point. But, sell when you need
1: it for a purpose.
0: Right, and I think that's the key there is getting in when you can, like you said, and then investing consistently, right? And so using strategy, so we're going to talk about this a little bit, the strategy of dollar cost averaging and combining that with indexing so that you have the chance to capture market gains as they come and so that you are investing consistently so you're building that portfolio over time rather than trying to time the market.
1: Yeah, and so let's, let's talk about dollar cost averaging then. So what exactly, how do you describe dollar cost averaging?
0: Yeah, so basically dollar cost averaging is about uh, picking a certain, like a set dollar amount each month. And you say, I'm going to invest, like you say, I'm going to invest 100 bucks each month, and I'm going to buy, X, you know, I'm, I'm going to use this money, and the $100 will buy as many shares of whatever it is that I can.
1: Yeah, and we'll get into what those shares are and what you should buy later, but just, just starting with the whole process. Except it's
0: not really advice. We're not really offering advice. We're right. just telling you what we would do. <laughs> so. But yeah, so dollar cost averaging is a strategy that says, I have X amount of dollars and I'm going to put that in each month and buy however much I can. So if you buy something that costs $50 this month, uh, you're going to get two shares of it. And so each month you put that $100 in, each month you buy more shares. Now, the market goes up and down, the shares of whatever it is you're buying are going to go up and down. So, So some months, you know, say things go down. And so now it's worth $25. So now your $100 is buying four shares. And so as long as it's low, you're buying more shares. But then as the market starts to rise, your $100 buys fewer shares.
1: I think the important thing about dollar cost averaging is it allows you to invest your cash as your cash becomes available. Like when your income comes in, you put as much as you can really into into the investment. And then with every paycheck or every month or whatever it happens to be, that's when you do it. If for some reason you come into a large amount of cash, like say from an inheritance, in that case, I would not suggest dollar cost averaging.
0: Right. Dollar cost averaging works best over time when you have uh, limited funds and they're coming in and you want to keep up with your income. With the big sum of money, like you said, it's actually more effective over time to just invest the lump sum now and capture those market gains over time later. Uh, dollar cost averaging is about putting in what you can consistently and growing your wealth over time. And we're talking a period of you know, 10 to 30 years and growing your wealth and being consistent in what you put in so that you can capture the market gains over time.
1: Okay, so let's talk about when we are dollar cost averaging or investing a lump sum regardless whatever our situation is, whatever we're doing, what do we invest in? And I'm not talking about specific companies. I'm talking about what this what are we doing when we're investing, when we say that we're investing?
0: I personally prefer index mutual funds and index ETFs. These are products that are tied to a specific index. Like we talked about the Dow Jones. Uh, I personally like the S and P 500. So this is, you know, the 500 large cap, the, you know, biggest large cap stocks on the market. So I personally like the S and P 500 as an index, but there are plenty of others. There's some, there are indexes that follow like the Russell 2000, like a small business index or indexes that follow foreign stocks. There, there are all sorts of these. And there's even an all-market one that basically gets you a chunk of everything that's publicly traded in the United States.
1: Why do we look at these indexes that are spread out within either 40 or 500 or 1,000 companies? Is it the diversity? Is it giving us a little less risk? Or is it just to match what the market on average is doing?
0: It's both. I personally like to do it because I like... So so I'm not interested in beating the market. There are people out there who are like, I feel good when I beat the market. When I pick stocks or when I pick this thing and I beat market performance, that makes me happy. And good for you if that's, you know, your thing, I guess. But I personally, I'd want to just capture market gains. So if you choose an index fund that represents a large swath of the market, It doesn't matter if like the individual stock inside of it, if, you know, a few of those stocks are struggling because the market as a whole is gaining and you capture those market gains. So you're basically just riding the wave. And over time, the market has yet to lose. There has been no 25 year period in history where the market has had a net loss,
1: when you say that, you should also point out that although the market has not had losses, people who invest in the market have losses because they have to take out money when they need to take out money. And that's just how it works. There's right. no individual who is just... I represent the the market and everything I do is reflected, you know, the market's performance is reflected in my investments. It just never works because we're humans and we get into the market at certain times and we leave the market at certain times. And all of that is driven by things other than what people say, just leave it in there for 30 years and you'll make money.
0: Yeah. And to a certain degree, though, that's kind of... Kind of true, so well, think about the s and p right or or the Dow, even, so if you look at the Dow Those and you both look at
1: being representations of the market as a whole
0: well, indexes portions of the market, right, the Dow Jones industrial average is only thirty stocks, right, but people <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: like we said earlier, people use it to represent the market as a whole,
0: right but so let's say you get in in like the eighties right, when the Dow is right around two thousand or so, right, so you get in and and you have the run up and and prior to the financial crisis there were a couple years where the dow hit like 10,000 11,000 13,000 14, whatever and then you hit 2009 and it's after the the financial crisis of 2008 and it's down below 7,000 right so people feel like oh my gosh i lost a lot because a few years ago you know the Dow hit thirteen thousand, and now it's down below seven thousand. And look at what I've lost. But if you were in since you know nineteen eighty five, even a <laughs> that's a big f. That's a big f. You'd be old if you had been in since nineteen eighty five. I'm just saying, <laughs> if, if you were old, if you were an old person, and you'd been in since nineteen eighty five, you still have net gains. You're sad because you you're you're basing it on the fact that you could have had bigger gains if you had sold a few years earlier but the bottom line is you've captured the gains over that 30 year period because you stayed in and so something similar might be said when you're looking at a 1000 point drop or whatever it's like a couple years ago right in august 2015 there was this period of time where the dow was just just tanking and there was a day when it lost 588 points. And on that day, you're probably going, oh my gosh, it's lost all this stuff. But if you had invested in 2009, 2010, 2011, you're still ahead of when you first put that money in. So it's really a long game. And we tend to think in terms of, oh my gosh, what could I have had if I had sold three days ago? <laughs> and, and and that's what we tend to think about rather than looking at like the long-term benefits of saying okay if i'm what if i capture the market returns over time
1: yeah, th- those market returns though, I mean we like to talk about them, it's just hard because we have human behavior to deal with. And go go back to 2009 when we were in the recession and the economy was doing bad, companies were laying people off and older people were finding they they were hoping to stay working for another 10 years and they were finding that companies were laying them off and getting rid of them and they were losing 10 years of, you know, income that they were kind of hoping on or expecting or they just weren't planning to retire yet. And here they are, and suddenly the market's in a terrible place, and they don't have their pension anymore, because companies got rid of pensions. And they're living off of their 401k, which is also at a low point, And now they're taking money out Uh, earlier than they expected and it's just we we like to think about the market as this perfect thing that if we just stay in it and everything's going to be fine and we're going to make those market returns but the reality is that because of human behavior and what we need to live a lot of that just doesn't play out but it's still our best hope so you've got to do it anyway
0: yeah, I was going to say your your other option is to put 100 bucks in that savings account at 1% APY for the next 30 years. And, and that won't
1: get you far.
0: And that won't get you anywhere. So yeah, so it is difficult and you do run into these issues. But at the same time, like you said, it is the best hope for moving forward.
1: Right. So that's an index mutual fund. Now, where do we find them and how do we invest in them?
0: I think a good places to start include places like Schwab, who have a low barrier to entry, uh, if you commit to contributing a certain amount of money each month to a retirement account, to the individual retirement account they have, then they'll waive some of your requirements your $2,000 requirement to start investing. And that's nice. But if you're concerned about that, there are places that make use of index-based investments Like Betterment, where you can put a hundred bucks a month in and, you know, they'll help balance your portfolio for you based on your risk profile. And, and you can get started fairly easily. But if you're looking for a straight index fund type investment, you know, a good place to start is something like Schwab or Fidelity, where the minimums are relatively low and where you have access to index funds that don't come with fees.
1: And so when you go to one of these sites and sign up, basically you search for, say, total stock market index fund, or you look for, you browse and find a list of their index mutual funds and go off of there, find one that's as broad as possible, that focuses on stocks, and then look at those fees too, because the lower the fee, the better it performs compared to the stock market in the or whatever their benchmark is in the long run.
0: Right, and those fees kind of can eat into your returns but you know the fees are less important than other things in some ways like just making sure that you have the ability to make a regular investment each month um no matter how small that is
1: sure and if you don't then start saving up and you can certainly use a savings account or even a jar of coins until until you hit that you know Whether it's $100 that you need to put in a bank and then transfer over to an investment account, um, you can do that. I'd probably stay away from going to your bank and saying, hey, what kind of investment options do you have? Go to one of these discount brokerages like Schwab, Vanguard, Fidelity, Betterment, and those are going to give you some good options for starting
0: yeah definitely. The last place you want to go is your local bank. <laughs> not, to, not to bag on local banks, but those investments are are likely going to be come with high fees. And may not match your risk profile.
1: Right, they they will be there to sell you something, regardless of how they say they're acting in your best interest. Uh, all the all the world is here to sell you something. Believe me, you know. So are we. You know, in a way, we would like you to stick around and listen to us. Uh, so we're going to give you the best information we can. But that's kind of selling too. And regardless, regardless, you want to get the best product, and the best product we feel are index mutual funds.
0: Is there ever a time when it makes sense to try and buy low? (laughs) Does does it ever make sense to try and make this happen?
1: I just like the idea of buying now instead of buying low, because, you know, over the long term, now is when things are going to be the lowest on average in general. And the, the problem is if you wait for the low to happen, you're going to miss it if you have the money, just, just try to take care of it. Unless there's some other kind of external reason where you really think that, you know, we're, we're in, we're at the absolute top, but it's just trying to time that you, you always lose because the market always wins.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do uh, personally, I do like to have like a little bit set aside. aside. Usually I keep three to four weeks worth of expenses and a very liquid high yield savings account. Most of my, as, as we've talked about before in our emergency fund episode, most of my emergency fund is actually in a taxable investment account. But I do put money regularly in this high yield savings account for three to four weeks of expenses that I can liquidate very quickly And there are times when if, you know, there's a market event happening or if I see something happening that I'm like, oh, maybe I would like to buy a few extra shares of my favorite fund or something like that, where I will take a chunk of that money that's sitting there and go ahead and and buy on a dip and get a couple extra shares just to kind of give my portfolio a little boost. But then, of course, it means that I have to spend the next few months making sure that I divert some money back to build up that buffer.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think anything's wrong with it. I think if you have money that isn't, uh, you know, it's if it's extra, if it won't affect the overall portfolio too much, then by all means, give it a try. I mean, every time I've tried to buy on dips, uh, for example, I think, hey, wow, okay, this company had some really bad news, but they're still a solid company. I, I really think this is fine. Let's do it. There were always lower points later on because it believe me every thought you have about the market that you think is insightful thousands or more of other people have already had that idea and are acting on that idea and it is probably going to affect uh, the results and you think that you're being insightful and maybe you are but there's believe me a lot of people who are thinking the same thing you are
0: So now one of the things that people get into is moving money around trying to make their portfolio safer, like moving it from stocks into bonds or, you know, moving into cash when when the economy looks like it's going to be awful. And so uh, let's talk about that a little bit. When when should you move your money around?
1: Well, I try to not do it very often. You know, you, you set things up the way it should be in terms of what your risk is. And this is a big topic, and we haven't really talked about it, but how, how your risk and how willing you are to see your the value of your account drop and drop and drop during some frustrating economic periods, if you're okay with that, thinking that, you know, I've got a long way to go, I'm going to be invested for many, many decades, and this is fine, I can deal with that. Or if you feel that you're going to need your cash within the next ten years or so, and and those dips, you don't want to, uh, you know, you want to even it out a bit. All of that plays into how you decide, how you set up your investments among things like stocks in the mutual, the index mutual funds is you can get that balance in stocks, you can get it in bonds, and the relationship between, you know, just in general, the relationship between your, the stocks that you have and the bonds that you have, and the amounts, you know, say 60% stocks, 40% bonds, or something like that. The more of the higher percentage you have in stocks, for example, in general, the more you're willing to deal with those rocky periods and be okay with losing some value because you know that stocks are going to carry you higher over the long term. Bonds, on the other hand, are a little safer, so they're more stable, so they're not going to move up and down as much, and sometimes they even go in the opposite direction as stocks. Again, this is all very general, and you have to drill down into some specifics to see how it works, but that's the general idea. And once you have that, once you decide this is my risk profile, I'm willing to accept some you know, movement, but I want something stable to to keep it to keep it there so I I'm not I'm not I don't feel like I'm putting too much risk on myself. So maybe you'll say 70% stocks and 30% bonds. And then as the market changes, you're going to see that your percentage it changes because stocks will perform better than bonds, bonds will perform better than stocks, and so the percentages will go up and down. So it makes sense to me to just just take maybe just once a year and automatically set set things up in your account to automatically rebalance. So you just end up, if stocks get up to 72% and then bonds are at 28, then you just want to sell some of those stocks and buy some bonds. So you're back to the 70-30 if you've decided that that's the best mix for you. And just do that once a year and do it on a schedule. So You're not even influenced by what the market is doing or what people say is happening in the economy. Just keep it automatic and get it done and just leave it alone.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the best approach. And I I like how you mentioned, you know, if you're going to rebalance, if you're going to sell, make sure you do it based on your goals and your asset allocation. Uh, Not because you're freaking out over whatever it is you're freaking out about. Because we make terrible decisions when we're scared. And that's, I mean, that's when the most uh, potential for danger happens is when we are in freakout mode and we find ourselves making these decisions and selling because you know, we're in a panic or because everybody says we should. And making sure that you have your goals and a purpose for what you're doing is vital to avoiding huge mistakes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's all in the planning and it's all thinking it out ahead of time and then not reacting when there's something emotional happening. Unfortunately, you know, again, like we said before, a lot of the reasons that we do sell or move things around is because we are in a desperate situation. And that's, you know, when the economy tanks, that's when we're going to need our money and there's just nothing we can do about it. Some advanced planning will help if you set things up in such a way that you are, you're getting a stream of income from your investments that, that, that is going to remain somewhat constant. Uh, that's always a good way to set things up if you can, if it doesn't cost you a lot of money to do so. But otherwise, you you just have to, as much as possible, even though it's impossible. Uh, we always say that just to take the emotions out of these decisions. But all decision making is emotional. You just have to control it a little bit, a little bit more than just whatever comes naturally.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of the key there. And and having a plan does help. And having a strategy for the future or understanding uh, the goals that you have can make a big difference in making sure that you can keep those emotions in check. Because when you know you have a plan, it's much easier to say no, and it's much easier to step back and say, wait a minute, does this decision fit with the plan?
1: Yeah. And when you're young, the plan can be really simple. It's basically, I take what whatever extra income that I have, perhaps after making my student loan payment or paying off credit cards, if that's the case, I'm going to put this certain amount of money into this investment, an index mutual fund that tracks the market. I don't worry about bonds or anything like that because I've got... This is money that I want to be there for me 30 years down the road. So I'm going to invest it aggressively into stocks through the index mutual fund. And then I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to pretend the money's not there until I need it later, later in life. And then that way you're not even affected by anything. It's just automatic and it's a plan and you stick to it and you don't have to worry about anything else.
0: Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense too, Just is just say, okay, I'm gonna forget about it. Because one of the big reasons that people lose money is through frequent trading because they're trading at the wrong time. The more you trade, the more fees you incur. There's just a lot that goes into that. And so being able to stick it away and not think about it is one of the best things you can do.
1: Yeah, and the the whole idea of uh like day trading, for example, where people just sit on their, you know, they they watch they watch the stocks and they trade, they buy, they buy and they sell. All of that is making money for the financial industry and losing money for you. The chance of winning at this over the long term is is very low. It's like gambling. Sure, some people come out ahead for at least a short time, but the house always wins. And it's the same thing with the stock market once you start betting on stocks this way by looking at their prices and thinking, well, I think uh, Yahoo's going to make a move or I guess it's not even Yahoo anymore, but whatever the company is thinking that they're going to do something in the future. (laughs) Because if you had inside information and were trading on it, then that would be illegal anyway.
0: (laughs) That's right. So let's say you're ready to start investing. Uh, What are some of the do nows that you need to uh, take care of?
1: The the first do now is just start investing. Just just do it. I mean, just take the money that you have extra, even if it is a little. And if it is a little, put it aside and keep putting it aside until it's you know maybe $100 that allow you to invest. Just do it. Go to one of those places that we've talked about. Sign up for the account. Find that index mutual fund, say an S&P 500 fund. That's one of my favorite. Or a total stock market index fund. That's another great one and just start, and then look for that button where it says automatically invest. Set it up, even if it's just a couple of dollars every pay period.
0: Yeah, that's one of the best things you can do. And as far as that start investing thing goes today, and we've talked about pay period, if you are working for somebody who has a 401k plan and you are not investing in that 401k plan, now is the time to start. Walk down to the HR rep and ask them how you can start investing in your retirement plan and make sure a portion of your paycheck goes toward that every single month.
1: Yeah. And usually the default investment for a 401k, because a 401k is an account type, it's not an investment. So the investments within the 401k, you look at them. Uh, usually the default one is going to be okay. Whatever they set you up with is going to be okay, but there might be an index mutual fund in there. That's going to be lower cost and it's going to be better for you. So look at those options and see if there's an index mutual fund. And certainly if the company is matching your contribution in any way, you absolutely have to do everything you can to take advantage of the full maximum matching contribution because that is that is part of your compensation. And not taking that would be like saying, "Oh, I don't need this, you know, this part of my salary this week. Just keep it." because the company has already set aside this money for you. So you must take advantage of it as much as possible.
0: Yeah, the match is a great thing. The next thing you can do is, is educate yourself, learn more. Two books that I really like in terms of learning about investing, uh, particularly indexing, are The Little Book of Common Sense Investing by John Bogle, and then also Oblivious Investing by Mike Piper.
1: Yeah, you don't want to be oblivious though. I've been I've been told I'm oblivious and it's not a good thing to be. So, you want to make sure uh you yeah, have read these books and you absolutely will not be oblivious. This will this will help you get started. And
0: yeah, the beautiful thing about oblivious investing is that it's not about you being oblivious. It's it's about you pushing out the noise around you mm-hmm. and sticking to this indexing fund. And it's what you were talking about Harlan is putting the money in and just letting it go and forgetting about it. And it is one of my favorite all-time books. It's very simple. It's very easy to understand and it's what got me started as an indexer
1: yeah and on the other hand the little book of common sense investing is great because it gives you the it gives you a deeper understanding of why something like index mutual funds is is the best way to go so i you know i both highly recommended so we have a listener question This one comes from a listener, a longtime listener who says, I don't have a lot of money. Can I still start investing? Where should I put a small amount of cash? Which is great because we kind of touched on this throughout the episode.
0: First of all, a lot of accounts don't have account minimums. So you can actually open a lot of these accounts. They may, you know, to buy certain types of funds, you may need a minimum. But to just open an account and, and kind of get things started, you don't usually need anything. And you can usually start investing with as little as $25, which is great. And so there are plenty of places to put small small amounts of cash. And indexing is one of the great ways to do this because you get access to a wider swath of the market uh, for your money. So it's a great bang for your buck kind of thing. And then there are also some interesting places to go. We mentioned Betterment. If you have at least $100 a month, you can put toward that. It's a great way to get started investing but if you have less than that and you want to start an automatic investment sort of plan, there is a company called Acorns that you can start putting money into. Now, the biggest problem I have with Acorns is it is a dollar a month to start and so that's up to $5,000 in your account. And so that dollar a month to start, like if you're only investing like $10 a month, it's like 10% right there. Yeah. But it does fulfill the whole requirement that you start now. And so even though it is kind of a pain in the butt in terms of the fees, if you can't put money anywhere else, this is not a bad place to go. It'll take your pocket change automatically and invest it. Or the other, another option, the government offers the MyRA, but you have to meet a lot of eligibility requirements to qualify for that. And we'll go ahead and include a link so that you can check out those requirements in the show. But if you meet the eligibility requirements, you can do as little as 5 dollars a paycheck into the my ra and check with your hr department if you have a job uh, find out what the you know minimum is to start setting aside money for retirement uh, because that's a really great place if you don't feel like you have a lot of money your company retirement plan is a great place to start because it'll just take it out of the paycheck you won't see it you won't think about it and you can increase that as you go along
1: Yeah. And there are so many ways to get started now without... There has been no better time in the history of investing for everybody to find a way to just get started. It is so accessible now. The information is so prevalent online. I mean, there's a lot of bad information too, but there's a lot of good information that's going to get you started. And there are a number of options. And I think. I think by outlining some of the top ones today, I think we've given we've given you a good place to start.
0: Yes, definitely. So go ahead and check us out at adulting.tv. Make sure that you subscribe to us on iTunes at adulting.tv slash iTunes. If you have a question for us, like this listener did, go ahead and go to adulting.tv slash ask and we'll try to answer your question either in an article or in an episode or in our forthcoming video series help so <laughs> make sure you check that out
1: yeah and if you want to access any of the resources that we talked about today just go to adulting.tv/a73 that's today's episode
0: that's right and remember until next time act like a grown up <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to Adulting. Find resources for this episode or download other episodes at adulting.tv.